Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I wanted to talk to you about the telephone system at the Walt Disney World Resort. And you're probably thinking to yourself, telephone system? What, what is Dave crazy or something? No, there's actually a story here that's worth telling. Disney did something unique in this space that I think warrants a little bit of attention. So before we get into that story, I want to back up a little bit in history and talk about the Radio Corporation of America, RCA. RCA had this relationship with Disney that dated back to the earlier days of Disneyland. RCA was creating different components for communications and making televisions and doing all of these other things in the electronic space. So they had a lot of things they were doing and they saw Disney as an opportunity to showcase some of their products. They had exclusive agreements to produce some of the electronic equipment to uh, actually do some things at Disneyland that no one else was doing. And the kind of the underlying principle was, as they created these things, these electronic gizmos and gadgets, they could showcase them at Disney and actually make them available to the public, test them out, and then actually uh, be able to sell them. So it was sort of this partnership that allowed them the research that they wanted to do, but also allowed them some sort of marketing that would allow them to, to sell their products and move more. And plus, of course, Disney was purchasing some amount of product for them, from them anyway. So it sort of was a, you know, a synergistic relationship, you might say, where everyone was kind of winning in a way. So RCA had this relationship and they were doing a lot of things. And when Disney started talking about building more Disneyland projects, you know, going east and thinking about things, you know, there was this discussion at some point that Disney might actually move to New Jersey. New Jersey being close to New York, it's like a great opportunity for companies that are in New York to invest in it. And RCA was based out of New York and they were interested in having some uh, relationship with Disney if he moved to that uh, area. And so they were actually going to do some financing and some provide some funding to Disney if they moved to uh, the New, York, New Jersey area for the next Disneyland. Now, of course, that didn't happen. But then when Disney started talking to, to uh, the developer MacArthur down in Palm Beach about the potential to move there, Disney, was, Disney had also reached out to RCA about potentially funding such a project as that. And RCA was very interested again because, again, they saw an opportunity. And they wanted a partner. And this whole idea of Epcot was fascinating because they could expand on this idea of creating something that's all these di different electronic things that then they could sell and they could demo and they could play and they could learn and they could grow. All of these things were really important to RCA. So fast forward again. Now it's Disney's actually bought, bought this land in Orlando and they have this sprawling resort and they have the idea for Epcot, this experimental prototype community. And when you think about how that all comes together, you know, there's a really an interesting sort of 
thing that happens because one of the things Disney wanted to do was be on the cutting edge of communication. If it's going to be that big a resort, that big an area that they're going to encompass, you need to think about ways to, to automate, to make things better, to be able to communicate across the resort quickly, to have things that'll happen. So that way in real time, you know what's going on. And part of it's going to be uh, hotel reservations, part of it's going to be for the food services, part of it's going to be for your merchandise, part of it's for uh, just making sure that you have connectivity between different areas, right? So the northern part of the park and the southern part of the park connect. It could be two-way radio, it could be electronic communications, it could be something else. So RCA saw a tremendous opportunity here, and they signed an agreement with Disney to get in, into this deal and figure out what kinds of things they could create. And because they'd be prototyping things and building something, Disney would buy some of their product and then they could prototype something and then they could sell it to the general public. So it was a win all the way around. And Disney would in return get something where they could create this communication system that would be around. So RCA really was kind of embedded with Disney to that point. You know, they really had a lot of things going on. And don't forget that David Sarnoff was the person who was the head of RCA at that point. RCA also owned uh, NBC, and they had lured away the wonderful world of Disney from ABC to NBC because Sarnoff had a personal relationship with Disney and saw this opportunity to build out something that was really interesting and really make something that, that would uh, really kind of sell something and make move product and make, you know, make his a name for his company. The other company that was really engaged with Disney at this point was United States Steel. Though they were in a completely different space, the principle was they were going to provide the steel and the steel workers and build a lot of the infrastructure, physical buildings and so forth, for Disney. So these two companies were really the critical linchpins to what Disney was going to do. You needed the physical components to build something, and you needed the way to communicate in and among all of the activities you were going to be doing. Now, there were other companies that came up too, but these were the two biggest ones that were really engaged with Disney and had deep pockets and wanted to get involved. Now, if we think about Epcot overall, Epcot was envisioned as a working laboratory in a way for corporations, and Disney said that they would be able to demonstrate their products on a global stage. So in 1969, Card Walker, who was then the vice president of the company, said that the Magic Kingdom would provide a common meeting ground for the interests of both industry and the public. In the wake of U.S. Steel's and RCA's involvement, other corporations such as Aerojet General, Monsanto, and others uh, assigned task forces to see what they could do because they wanted to see if they could eventually build into Epcot and, and be able to get something. Walker said major companies participating in Walt Disney World will benefit in two ways. First, they'll have an opportunity to tell their story directly to more than 8 million people visiting Walt Disney World, foreign visitors, as well as American vacationers. Second, there's the marketing potential of a building advertising campaigns around the company's part in one of the country's most exciting new projects, Walt Disney World. Those are really the arguments to make. That's the, that's the way to engage companies, delight your guests, and really make something unique. Don Tatum, who was the president of the Walt Disney Company, also said that the research carried out and the experience gained in the new systems, the new devices, the new techniques, which have been found feasible during the past three and a half years of investigation, as well as those yet to be found, will provide a body of knowledge and experience as we move into the project that is defined today and will certainly lead to the development of Epcot. RCA, trying to figure out how this would work, got into a feasibility study. They put together a project, they put a team together, and they started to figure out what it would take and what they could do for Disney and what Disney would give them in return. Would this be worthwhile? Would this be beneficial in some way? 
So President Robert Sarnoff, who's, I guess, I think it's his brother. I'm not positive it's David Sarnoff's brother. But anyway, he was the, uh, he was this, the president of the company. And he said that this activity would combine many skills and disciplines in a unified problem-solving effort. And we'd meet increasingly urgent social and economic challenges, including problems in health, urban planning, natural resources, and education. So you see where this is all going. They're fitting together and they're figuring out how they can do something and use all of these, this knowledge and these new electronic components that they're making to really make something cool. So they wanted to figure out how to develop an integrated information communication system for the Walt Disney World Resort. Sarnoff said, we of RCA are proud to be associated with Walt Disney Productions in a project that holds so much promise for the future of the human society. So they went through their, their study. They figured out what they could do. And they came back with a recommendation that this is a really good idea and they should go forward. And the recommendation was kind of detailed and they had a lot of things in there that get a little more technical. I won't, won't get into that, but they could meet the desired goals of the Walt Disney World Resort and they could make an integrated system tailored to Disney's demands, but based on standard product line equipment. So it was possible to provide this equipment and customize it in a way that would meet all the goals, right? So Disney could get what they wanted and be able to communicate. It went on to talk about providing guests with an array of new services designed to enhance Disney's existing high standards of guest services. It would serve as a working prototype for Epcot, and they wound up calling it the Walter E. Disney Communications Oriented Monitoring and Management System, or WEDCOM. Love these acronyms. They always seem to have Walter Elias Disney in them somehow. WEDCOM Disney said was the first 21st century information communication system, a dramatic preview of tomorrow's system of technology. Its modular design meant that it would be able to expand to meet the demands of the resort's growth and to take advantage of operational experience and technological advancement. Now we're still in like 1969 here and you know the, the resort is being built out and they think they can do this and it's really exciting and there's a great opportunity here. Now, somewhere along the way, this was actually kind of amusing in its own way, they, in their executive summary, RCA tried to take a day-in-the-life sort of approach, to take a guest who might be visiting Walt Disney World. And they talked about the benefits of using WEDCOM. And so they, they kind of came up with this thing for this fictitious Kellogg family that would come in. And, you know, they would arrive at the, at the Disney World Entrance Center, uh, it would be like a check-in space that's away from the hotels. If you think about the original design for Disney, you would kind of come up and you would come to this checkpoint sort of and you would check in to be part of the resort and then you would be directed to your hotel. And in doing so, you would uh, be alerting all of the services that needed to be there. So the hotel would be ready for you. You would have food services food services at the standby. You would start to uh, have your... You know, be ready to take your car or have the have the bus or the monorail know that you're coming so that you could uh, start to get there their room could get cleaned up uh and uh you know the maid service could be sent over at that point uh and you know all these things and they have everything kind of locked down then they when the guest actually got to the room when mr kellogg got there they'd find that there would be that a color television and more channels than they'd ever seen this would be you there would be an RCA television in every room and you would get more channels because they'd be able to uh, get more electronic devices to send in more channels. There were only three stations, four stations in the Orlando area at the time, but they had a, they had a thought on how they could get more channels piped into these rooms, some of it through closed circuit type things, but you could actually see more television content. So you'd be out of the element. You know, everywhere in the world at that point, you had a t an antenna for a TV. 
and all you could get was your local stations. What if they made, made more? I mean, you think about sort of the immersive experience of being there, it, it becomes much more. There would be a special channel talking about things you could do at the resort, in the Magic Kingdom especially. Uh, there'd be a fenced-in playground with a closed-circuit monitoring, so you could see that. There's an uh, AM-FM radio that's playing Disney music and other music from the area. When the family got to the Magic Kingdom, there would be surveillance to help them to get around and making sure that they were safe. Uh, their ticket status would be known. They might be a preferred guest or using the Walt Disney World credit card and automatically billing. You know, all these things, think about it. This is all what's happening today with Genie and Genie Plus. This is exactly what RCA envisioned 50 years ago. That's amazing to me that they were that had that much foresight and it took 50 years to actually build it to a point where it made sense. But essentially, that's what it is today. Then there would be a computer system that would keep track of uh, their attendance prediction model. So the inventory control system and computerized personnel scheduling would know where to put people. So they knew how many people they had to have on staff that day. And then they would have enough merchandise to have on the, on the shelf. Uh, when they enter the park, the turnstile uh, clicks to reveal that attendance is rising faster. And that in turn let the operations manager know that they need to have more cast members in certain places. When queues start to build up, they'll start to bring more people around or bring Mickey Mouse around to entertain people in those queues so there's more happening and they, they get more engaged. While they're having a snack, they're alerted via a television monitor that there's special pricing to go into effect on the steamboat ride. You know, sort of a push notification, if you will. It's, it's, it's Genie Plus. I mean, that's really what it is. It just amazes me. When they return to the hotel, the light blinking on their uh, communication center or essentially the answering machine on the phone, they get connected to the front desk and they tell them they have a message from their grandmother. This seems very simple. And if you grew up in the sometime in the 80s or the 90s, this was you would go into a hotel and the hotel would have a blinking light because you had a message and you could listen to that message or call the front desk and they would give you that message. This didn't exist in 1970. This, this was new. No one had done this before. So RCA had come up with a model for how to do that. It's yeah, really amazing that they thought this through. So RCA loved the idea. Disney loved the idea. RCA had said that this was going to provide administrative, financial, and operational functions into a single management information system, unique in scope and providing a new dimension and control of a major enterprise. They also said the system is expected to contribute to broad improvements in education, health, safety, utility operations, municipal government, monetary systems, recreation, and transportation. These will be an outgrowth of the WEDCOM applications as computer-assisted instruction, multi-test health screening, safety monitoring, automated reading drills, and billing and collection for utility services. They really had grand ambitions for what they were doing. They saw backstage uses for it to make sure that uh, they could have cast members in the right places at the right times to uh, make sure the guests had the experience they needed. So this was part of the scheduling system as well. They wanted to have guest satisfaction built into it, so they would have surveys, promote return visits, uh, go through word-of-mouth advertising. I saw something really cool when I was at Disney World. Blah, blah, blah. They also saw this, this whole idea of wideband television as providing more training and more expertise to people because you could get to people's uh, faces faster, so you could have more eyeballs looking at whatever it is you want to train them on. If there's an up-training thing that they see, there's a way to do that through this, this closed-circuit television they've come up with and so on, and so on, and so on. You get the idea, right? It was really something that <laughs> was really crazy. Now, the funny part about this is that 
RCA wanted to showcase their products. They wanted to have the logo on things. You know, they were going to sell Disney some amount of their product. They were going to sponsor some things. They were going to provide some money up front. There was a financial exchange that happened here. And when you think about all of the things that were going to happen, RCA saw the opportunity to really build out something where their product gets marketed and they have some things going on. And this was really, you know, it seemed like a really great idea. There was going to be computer systems, early computers, of course. There was going to be uh, integrated technology, all these communication lines, all these things that were going to happen. And you may realize as I'm telling the story, while this came to be with Genie, it never happened before that. For some reason, it all died off, but there is a specific reason. And it was really kind of funny. There was a story that Marty Sklar told that there was an Imag Imagineering meeting with RCA in New York. And the whole thing was, you know, they, they had predicated, they had put out the feasibility study, they had worked with Disney, they had done all these things, but they still had to go sell David Sarnoff on the whole thing. He had to, he had to sign off on it before anything would go forward. So the thing is that they went in there and there was supposed to be this financial arrangement. It was supposed to all be worked out. You know, millions of dollars was going to change hands over time. And there was going to be a lot of relationship building there. And they got their audience with uh, David Sarnoff. And uh, the Imagineers came in and they had all these drawings and plans and blueprints and things that they put on the wall. And David Sarnoff sat as far away from this as he possibly could. Scholar says they made their pitch. And he noticed that Sarnoff wasn't really engaged or interested. Sklar and John Hench were sitting there, and they were sitting up in the part of the room near the, near the head of the table where, where uh, Sarnoff was. And he saw Sarnoff scrub, scribble something on a, no, on a notepad and pass it over to a couple of executives that were sitting on the other side. When he saw what it said, it took away the whole momentum from everything. It said, who are these people? The VPs hadn't told Sarnoff who they were what they were doing, or what this was all about. Nine months after they started this thing, it all went down the drain at that moment in time. Now, there's probably more to that story than just that, but the principle is this lower levels of management, or maybe high levels of management, but below the CEO, had talked about this and had figured out what they wanted to do, but they had never talked to the guy on, on the top, and he needed to sign off on it, and he knew nothing about it. So the whole thing kind of died off, Disney still owned all the pieces to it and was really ready to go. So, you know, put that away and pick it up 50 years later, I guess, and run with it. Now, there's a little side note here that RCA uh, had already invested a lot into this whole technology and this, this principle that they were trying to do. And they wound up selling all of their, uh, this project, this whole plan that they were doing, this computer division that they had come up with to uh, Sperry Rand. And Sperry Rand was acquired by Univac. They became Unisys over times. But Sperry Univac was the one that was working with Epcot on the Computer Central when they were building out the idea for Epcot. So there's an interesting connection there that some of what they actually delivered to Epcot was the same thing, just by a different company. Kind of strange. And RCA stayed in business with Disney for a long period of time, but mainly developing color TVs and... Uh, other things and supplying other electronic equipment, but not computers anymore. So just kind of interesting how that, how that worked. They still had a big contract with Disney. They still sponsored a number of things. I think they sponsored Space Mountain when it opened in 1975. And they had some other things that they did, 
but they really weren't so involved with a lot of other uh, things at that point. They built automatic monitoring control systems to monitor the rides and the attractions to make sure it was safe for the next ride vehicle to move along and those kinds of things. But it didn't have that depth, that same thing that was going on there. Now, what I was saying was Disney still had this need. I mean, here it is, it's 1970, and they're planning on opening the park in a year, and they still have this need to create a communication system, a telephone system, this means of getting from one end of the park to the other and making sure that everything was interconnected. And so they actually made a decision to create a telephone company. They partnered up with a very local telephone company in Orlando to kind of help them because they had a little more expertise in the telephone business. But Disney actually took the charge on. They called it Vista United Telecom. And they actually took it on and were the first company to build an all-electronic network 100% touchtone dialing, 100% buried cable. None of that had ever been done before. They built it all like that. They built it all as it was, it was an electronic network. Rather than being this physical switching where you had to actually go in there and do some, you know, do the, uh, the plugs and pull them out, which was still the case in many places, they built it from scratch as an electronic network. And because they buried all the cable, they never had to worry about it. They didn't have to worry about overhead lines. They made it very simple. And they laid miles and miles of cable to connect up all the different parts of the park. The other thing is they were the first place in the United States to offer 911 service. Touchtone 911. They were the first place to have that. So their company actually came up with the method to do it and make sure that the Reedy Creek Fire Services were connected to that 911 service as a part of being in this whole dynamic of having these different electronic things connected up, having these cables connecting up throughout the park. In 1975, they made a change and became the first system in the continental United States with a video display long-distance operator system. So that meant that the long-distance operator, when you'd call, when you pick up the phone and you wanted a long-distance operator, they could actually look at a video display and do some things in the video rather than having to go and plug a cable into somewhere else. No one else had gotten to that point of having that display yet and being able to click on something and see what was going on. And in 1978, they were the first place in the United States to install a commercial fiber optic system. So they went to the uh, light-based system instead of the uh, copper cables, the copper wires. They were the first ones to do that. So it's really remarkable. And Disney actually had this. This was theirs. They owned it. They, they built it. By 1987, Walt Disney World was laced with more than 7,000 miles of copper and fiber optic cable. The WorldLink Earth, Earth Station transmitted and received video to satellite, beaming down the Disney Channel for guest rooms and broadcast special promotions and events from the resort. It was a full arc Earth Station in Central Florida, a motorized 10-meter dish that could reach any communication satellite in orbit, in orbit over North America. Using the satellite, Disney had set up a private corporate communications network between the Disney Studio and Walt Disney World. This had never been done before. Disney did this. This, this. this telecom company did this. So it's just amazing what Disney did and what they built. And then when they built Epcot and they had these, that communication kiosk that I've talked about where you had that video chat that was essentially a precursor to a cell phone, that was all based on this, this telecommunications network. Using fiber optic allowed them to have these communications happen in real time over generally decent distances. It wasn't like across the street. It, it went a little bit. So it's just amazing what Disney did. Now, the Vista United Telecom Company 
when Disney started to change some of the things to more uh, electronic and over-the-air communications, so they're using more Wi-Fi and more uh, Bluetooth and more radio communications, they still do have the wires in the ground, the cables in the ground, but they don't use them as much. They spun off the Vista United Telecom Company as its own company, and it still continues to run today in Central Florida, and there is the, there is the running of that. But when you think about in its heyday, there were, there were phones in every room, there were satellite link-ups, there were, there were pay phones everywhere, and all of them were crystal clear and always functioning. They did a great job of keeping them all maintained to make sure that they always had the ability to go back and forth and get data and, and have people connected. It's one of those remarkable things that I find really intriguing about what Disney did. It just was so cool that they spent the time and the effort to put this together to build something that no one had ever done before. And it was all based on this idea that they came up with, that they wanted to be interconnected and have this communications going back and forth between everything that happened at Walt Disney World and this new swampland that was just being built out. Let's think about it in a 21st century sense instead of a 20th century sense and build something that's really unique, really forward-thinking, and actually will be ahead of its time, which absolutely it was. And then if you think about all the stuff with they've done with Genie Plus since then, even the FastPass system before that. All of that stuff really was taking that next level and just taking all the things that they learned in 1969 and applying them. Just amazing to me. I, I just find the whole thing fascinating. Well, there you go. That's the story about Disney and the telephone company and how they came together to build something really unique. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart <laughs> of all creation right at the start of everything that's new one little spark lights up for you for my one little spark segment today i wanted to encourage you to stand up to hate when you see it there's an interesting thing about hate and the fact that we have so much that's grown this way and the opportunity exists for all of us to be good people and to stand up for all of us. There is no them, only us. So you can take a pledge to stand up to hate. That's racism, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, xenophobia, homophobia, transphobia, misogyny, albeism, and any other form of hate that you may encounter in life. If you take a pledge to say, I pledge to stand up against hate and stand up for respect, You'll speak out when you hear someone being attacked for who they are. Talk about how stereotypes, prejudices, and discrimination hurt our society. Ask legislatures to support laws that protect and advance civil rights. Never allow a bigoted slur to go unchallenged. Denounce online hate and report conduct that violates terms of service. Unite with diverse communities and educate myself on how to be an effective ally. Protect my neighbors by building welcoming communities. There's a mean-spirited attitude that's overcome our country over the last decade or so. I don't understand the hatred that's exhibited by so many. Much of it seems to come from political extremists, yet the majority of people are moderates no matter what their political affiliation. What really baffles me is why so many of those exhibiting hate and discrimination claim to be religious people. We know that there are very many wonderful people with different religious affiliations. Why has this group, who represents hate, received so much attention? Do our media need the news that bad that they will fill their time with hate? One of my favorite quotes is from the Dalai Lama. It's, be kind whenever possible. It is always possible. We are all part of the human race, and we all deserve to be treated kindly, without discrimination and hatred. We should be celebrating our differences, not trying to eradicate them. Would the true religious representatives please come forward and speak out against this hatred and discrimination? This is a little poem or short story written by Wanda Dingwall, talking about what's happening in our society. 
I'd also like to remind you about some famous quotes from people talking about standing up to hatred. From Martin Luther King, darkness cannot drive darkness. Light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Love can do that. From Nelson Mandela, no one is born hating another person because of the color of their skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. From Lester B. Pearson, misunderstanding arising from ignorance breeds fear, and fear remains the greatest enemy of peace. From Ernest Gain, why is it that, as a culture, we are more comfortable seeing two men holding guns than holding hands? The Dalai Lama, in the practice of tolerance, one's enemy is one's best teacher. Stephen Hawking, sometimes I wonder if I'm as famous for my wheelchair and disabilities as I am for my discoveries. Morgan Freeman, attacking people with disabilities is the lowest display of power I can think of. John Lennon, don't hate when you don't understand. Oprah Winfrey, you cannot hate other people without hating yourself. Mahatma Gandhi, where there is love, there is life. So as you think about these things, they're just quotes, I realize that. But think about what they're saying and that the underlying principle, love should conquer all, not hate. We shouldn't be hating another person. We shouldn't be being racist or misogynist or anything else for that matter. We should just be standing up and being respectful of one another and all that we stand for. And that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 